we are looking at Isaiah 54. This is a passage that focuses specifically on the mediatorial reward of Jesus, the mediatorial reward of Jesus. So I'll preface the reading of God's word with those statements. Here we're looking at Isaiah 54, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And as always, I know you'll find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me there. Isaiah now says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring, your seed, will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved. In spirit, like a wife of youth, when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, Isaiah 54 is one of those interesting chapters in the Old Testament. It's one that in the modern era of church history, and and by modern I mean the last 150 years, has not received uh, due attention. I think that's in part because it comes immediately after one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, about the suffering servant and all that he does, what we often call the fifth gospel or the gospel of Isaiah. And then it comes right before Isaiah 55, which is the great invitation, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. And both of those chapters rightly get enormous attention. But if you go through sermon series on Isaiah uh, in especially the last 50 years, you'll notice a vacuous uh, absence of sermons on Isaiah 54, which is interesting because, and you may not know this, in, um, on May 30th, 1792, William Carey, who's the father of the modern missionary movement, preached a sermon in front of a group of Calvinistic Baptists who were themselves needing guidance because hyper-Calvinism had taken over in the church. Evangelism was not occurring. They were all sort of just saying, well, as long as we just preach in the church, then, then things will be fine. And William Carey preached a sermon on Isaiah 54 too. We don't have that sermon in print, but it, it has been termed the deathless sermon because it continues to impact world missions. And in that sermon, William Carey made those two great statements, 
um, uh, attempt, uh, expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things of God, attempt great things for God. He understood that what this passage was saying was that there was a promise of enormous messianic blessing for the world following hard on the heels of what the suffering servant had accomplished. That what Isaiah 53 sets out, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the, the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, by his stripes were healed, that, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. And, and then you know the rest. At the end of that, it says, by his knowledge, my, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. He will bear their iniquities, and, and all that he does for his people then has a massive cosmic effect, a global effect. And Isaiah 54 is setting out the fruit of the suffering servant of the Lord. It's amazing. Um, I want us to consider three things this evening as we look at this. Isaiah throws the uh, mediatorial blessings of Christ under three figures of speech. The first he um, speaks of the mediatorial blessing as fruitful increase. There is, a, there is an anticipation of an incredible fruitful increase. Secondly, he, he throws it under the figure of marital love, that God is going to wed himself to his people. And then finally, he speaks of covenant compassion. God is not going to return in anger to his people. It's like his promise in the days of Noah never again to destroy the earth. In a greater way, he says, I will not return in anger to you. I will have great compassion on you. Now, before we look at those three things, I just want to note where we're at here in Isaiah. Isaiah is an interesting book. Israel um, is, is being prophesied to over uh, many years through four kings. And the first half of the book is speaking about the captivity and the judgment to come. God is telling Israel they are going to be judged for their iniquity. That, that the time has come for judgment. And then from chapter really 40 through 66, it is promises of restoration. Even before they go into captivity, even before they're, they're subject to the judgment of God, God is saying, I am going to comfort you. And, and he is in that section giving us those great servant songs. This is how the comfort is going to happen. God is going to do through the suffering servant what Israel failed to do. He's going to do it for Israel, but he's not just going to do it for ethnic Israel. He's going to do it for the true Israel. Now, how do we know that? Well, it's interesting. If you looked at verse 1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married says the Lord. Well, that shows up in Galatians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And that is cited there in Galatians about the new covenant church, the true Israel. And so this, this prediction is what God is going to do for the true people of God, for the people for whom Christ has died. And, and it's going to be a great population. Remember that great promise to Abraham um, that God would make him the father of many nations, that his, his seed would be like the stars of the sky and multitude, like the sand on the shore, uncountable. 
multitudes upon multitudes of, of descendants. And, and here, spiritual descendants are in view. And, and there is the promise of fruitful increase. Uh, Israel has not been fruitful. Israel has been spiritually unfruitful. And the only way Isaiah can help Israel understand what she's like is for the old covenant church to understand that it had become like an, a barren woman who couldn't have children, couldn't bear fruit, couldn't replicate righteous image bearers. Um, and yet, because of what the suffering servant has done, there will be a fruitful increase. Um, notice verse 2. It's an interesting verse. Isaiah says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now, if, if you have spent much time recently in Genesis, you might, you might say, well, that sounds strikingly similar to what God told Noah about two of his three sons. He said that Yahweh, Jehovah, would be the God of Shem. That's the one from whom Israel comes, right? Abraham comes from Shem. That's the line of the Redeemer. That's the line of Israel. And he, and he says that, that Yahweh would be the God of Shem. And then he blesses Japheth and says, may Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. So there's a, there's a, there's a prediction that Gentiles, all the way back at the time of Noah, that there are going to be Gentile nations that descend from Japheth, and they're going to be included in the place where God is dwelling with his people. They're going to be brought in. They're going to be brought together. They're going to receive the blessings of God in the tent of God, as it were, in the tent of Shem. And I think Isaiah is picking up on that language. Um, I want to read to you something uh, a theologian named DeGraff wrote. He said, the line of Shem was destined to have a very special relation to the Lord. In the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the line of Shem would achieve victory for the Lord. The Christ would one day be born of Shem's line. And then he says, Noah also asked God to bless Japheth and assign him an important role. He asked God to give Japheth many children and make his line dominant so that Japheth would also dwell in Shem's tents and share in the blessing of Shem the salvation of Christ. And here, Christ has accomplished the work of redemption in Isaiah 53, that prediction. And, and now the, the promise is that what Christ is going to do is he's going to spread his kingdom out, and he's going to include Jew and Gentile together. Um, and he's telling the church to expect this with eager anticipation. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I'd venture to say it's probably true that we can all become very pessimistic spiritually when we look at waning spiritual interest we look at our country turning so fast and so far from the truth um, it can it can sometimes lead us to be discouraged um, the graph says this sometimes it seems otherwise than God expanding the tents of Shem he says sometimes it looks as though wickedness will prevail because of Noah's prophecy, we know better. Isn't that interesting? Because of Isaiah 54, we ought to know better. That's, that's important. This is meant to stir up confidence um, that Christ is advancing his kingdom. DeGraff says, one day Christ will be recognized as the victor 
with all the world's progress pointing to and serving the coming of his kingdom. That's, that's the importance of the first point in this text. There's a promised increase, a promised spiritual fruitfulness. God is going to keep advancing his kingdom. You know, I've often thought it interesting, just as an aside, when, when the apostles were arrested, every time they were arrested, instead of the kingdom not advancing, it spread more. And, and so much so, even when the apostle John was arrested and put on an island in prison. So this is the, this is the most secure way to make sure the gospel's not going to go forth anymore. God opens heaven and gives him the fullest and last revelation. You see, God is not hindered by human circumstances, his kingdom. His promises are sure. He says he is going to increase. Now, that doesn't mean we should have a naive optimism. It doesn't mean that we should naively just think everything's great and not feel the burden of anything or, or be discouraged over the darkness of cultures. We should. But, but there is hope and there is promise. Notice verse 4, there is a sense where Israel receiving this, having heard that they're going into exile, and we in our situation today might, might be fearful. We might be discouraged. That's why he says in verse 4, fear not. Fear not. This is a word of encouragement and comfort um, and motivation. Uh, notice there, I think, is a prediction of the blessing of Christ himself in verse 3. You will spread abroad to the right, to the left, and your seed. That is first and foremost Christ. Paul makes that clear in Galatians. He says, he said, and to your seed, not to your seeds as is many, but as is one who is Christ. And the promise made to Abraham that he would be the father of the nations, that promise was passed down to Jesus, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the one who asks for the nations, labors for the nations, and receives the reward of the inheritance of the nations. He gets the worship of the people. Your seed will possess the nations. The suffering servant merited the right to inherit the nations. That's awesome. By the way, you're only sitting here today, if you're a regenerate Christian, you're only sitting here today because of what he merited. We, we are the fruit of what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 54. Every true believer in every Gentile nation. He's already massively fulfilling this. This is why William Carey would preach that passage to fuel the modern missionary movement. Um, there is a sense where we are to also understand our union with Christ here in so much as he is the seed, we are the seed in him. And what he does, we benefit from. Notice the next ver verse there in ver verse 3, the next line. People will inhabit the desolate cities. Israel would come back, but ultimately, spiritually, this is saying that God's people are going to inhabit his, his new, new creation. They're going to be part of his new creation, the new order that he creates to his death and his resurrection. And so there is a fruitful increase. Secondly, there is marital love. Notice, after saying, fear not, you will not be ashamed, nor be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. There are three words used here about 
how Israel at this point uh, would have felt about uh, its position and its status before the world. There's shame, there's disgrace. Israel's failed miserably. I, I think we are meant to read this too and think about our sin and the shame of our sin. Um, you know, back in the day, it used to be a good thing to talk about shame. Not, not to live in shame, but to understand that we should be ashamed of our sin and then therefore go to the one that takes away the shame. Um, not, it's become very popular for people to write books about the evil of shame and getting, getting rid of shame. Well, we want shame taken away. There's only one way. And, and God promises here. He says you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded. You will not be disgraced. How, do, how does that happen? Well, the Lord says he is going to be a bridegroom to his people. This, this is echoes of Hosea, isn't it? He's, he's going to wed an unfaithful wife to himself. We are unfaithful. We are. There's nothing lovely in us that commends us to God. Um, we sometimes mistakenly think that there is. Even if our life doesn't look like we think that, we try to convince ourselves of that. There's nothing. God says to Ezekiel about Israel, I, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I came and I, I washed you off and I made you beautiful. I gave you of my beauty. Um, the Lord wants Israel to know, and, and the true Israel, true believers to know, that he's going to be the bridegroom, and, and he's going to not only associate with his people, he's going to wed them to himself. That's amazing. You know, and I've quoted this before. Jonathan Edwards says this, The spouse of the Son of God, the Lamb's wife, is that for which all the universe was made. Think about that again. The spouse of the Son of God, the Lamb's wife, is that for which the universe was made. Heaven and earth were created that the Son of God might be complete in a spouse. Not that he needed, not that he needed anything, but that he desired that for himself, that he desired to wed his people to himself, that he desired to make an unlovely people his treasured bride for whom he died. It's beautiful. Um, I don't think, I know this is true for me, and perhaps it's not for you. I do not think about Christ as the bridegroom of my soul enough at all. Um, that's the heart. That's the heart of the Bible's message. That's the heart of it. That's where the Bible ends. That's, that's the whole plan of redemptive history is for God to wed himself. This is, this is why Jesus called himself the bridegroom. He called himself the bridegroom. He began his ministry at a wedding. The Bible opens with a wedding. It closes with a wedding. Luke 19, the, the, the lamb's wife, the church, washed for her husband. Loved by her husband. The shame taken away. Think of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame. He wins his bride to himself by laying down his life for her. You will forget the shame of your youth. 
and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts, Jehovah of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. And so God is promising that because of what the servant has done in his suffering, there would be marital love given to his people. Notice verse 6, For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Um, At my wedding reception dinner, people were asked to say nice things about me and Anna. They had a lot of nice things to say about Anna. And uh, I remember one friend said, Nick will, Nick will tell you the truth, and he may tell you all the truth all at once, which was not flattering. <laughs> and um, my best friend got up, and I thought, oh, no, this could go either way. And he said, the great, he said one thing. He said, the greatest thing about Nick is that Jesus loves Nick. The greatest thing about you is that Jesus loves you. That's it. It's not your success, not your accomplishment, not your parenting, not your marriage. It's it's none of that. The greatest thing about you is that Jesus loves you and that he is the bridegroom of your soul. He is your heavenly husband, redeemer. He's Boaz. We're Ruth. Ruth didn't deserve to glean in the fields of Boaz. Ruth didn't deserve to be noticed by Boaz. Ruth didn't deserve to be wed to Boaz. He's the kinsman redeemer. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer of our souls. And then there is covenant compassion. I want us to focus on this most specifically right now. All of this is sort of moving to these these last four verses. There's a sense where we deserve, there's a real sense, the truest sense where we deserve to be deserted, cast off, to come under the wrath of God, to be subject to his anger. We deserve that. Israel deserved that. Every one of Adam's descendants deserved that. Um, that, that. That ought to be what we get, but it's not what we get. Why don't we get it? Because God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. God has made a promise. And notice this. He says, In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What a a marvelous thought. Does it not quiet your heart to think the Lord has compassion on you, as sinful as you are? That's, That's the most quieting truth. That God has said, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, forever, I will have compassion on you. And then notice, he says, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, I will not rebuke you. Now, when God wants to press home the certainty of his everlasting love and compassion on covenantally unfaithful people, he points to what he did in the days of Noah, and he reminds them of the Noahic Covenant, and he reminds them of what is perhaps arguably the war bow that he puts down. There are people that don't like that. I think there may be a sense in which that's true. And and God is putting that rainbow in the sky to say, this is the guarantee that I will always keep my promises. 
whenever I see the bow, I'll remember mercy. And, and here's the marvelous thing. A lot of people have a hard time connecting the Noahic covenant to the work of Jesus. But when you come to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, John, the Apostle John says that around the throne on which the slain Lamb of God sits is a rainbow. I remember as a new Christian thinking, that's crazy. That when, when the Redeemer of the church who's sitting in the throne room in the center of the universe, ruling and reigning over everything, as it were, looks out, symbolically, he looks at a rainbow when he looks at his people. And the slain lamb has secured the covenant mercy. So that what we need more than anything, and the writer of Hebrews picks up on this so marvelously, when, when we are struggling with sin or uh, trials, afflictions, whatever, and our souls feel uneasy, the writer of Hebrews says, we have an anchor for our souls, both sure and steadfast, that has passed through the heavens, behind the veil, into the presence of God, even Jesus, the forerunner. And then when he unpacks the certainty of what we have, he, he goes to God's covenant promise and his unchangeable character. God doesn't change. Wow. That is so good for you and me. And he says when God wants to assure his people, he, he makes an oath that by two immutable things, unchangeable things, his, his promise and his own character, his own being, that he can't lie, he, he confirms that oath and probably thinking back to Abraham and the cutting of the covenant and God saying, if I break this part, then if any, either party breaks this part, so it'll happen to them and it happens to him. And he he keeps his promises. He doesn't change. That means every time I sin and I go back to the throne of grace and I really confess my sin truly, not perfectly, truly, that I have to have the greatest confidence that he is going to fulfill his promise to be faithful and just, to forgive my sin and to cleanse me, and that I, my only hope is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, Alec Motier, I don't know if that's how you say his name, Brian will correct me later, hopefully, if not, says this, for Noah, a stable ordinance of creation became the guarantee of peace with God. A stable ordinance of creation became the guarantee of peace with God, but Isaiah goes further. Don't miss this, he's going further. And Motier says, even should creation lose its stable permanence with mountains shaking and hills tottering, there is a covenant that cannot totter. Notice that he says that. Notice that. He says, the mountains, verse 10, may depart. The hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. He goes even further than what God says to Noah. He says, even if creation comes undone, my covenant is, is firm and secure and stable and unchangeable. Listen to what Motir says, the servant bore the punishment that made peace, Isaiah 53, 5, by his stripes we are healed, right? He, the, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. The servant has done that. And now, Motir says, that peace is a covenanted reality. Don't miss that. That peace is a, not because of what you do, not because 
of your track record, not because you've gone three weeks without falling into the same sin that you struggle with all the time, but the peace, because of what the servant has done, has become a covenanted reality. Listen to this. More steadfast than the cosmic fabric and rooted in the divine compassion, the emotion of anger is gone forever, but the emotion of surging love abides. Now, maybe it'd be better to say that attribute, the disposition of surging love from God to his people. Even on your worst day, which is not a license to sin, on your worst day, this is true. On your best day, this is true. That's that's the truest thing. Um, Our family loves the Horatius Bonarhim, I hear the words of love. And I, I, I almost can't sing it without crying. I love these two lines. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change my Savior knows. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's a reflection of what Isaiah is saying here. I want to leave you with just a couple thoughts this evening. Um, First, I want to encourage us and remind us about the promise of the expansion of the kingdom of God. We need to hear about that. Again, not not in a naive optimism, not in a sort of gleeful, you know, uh, hope that everything's just going to get better and better and better. There's no promise of that in the Bible. But there's a promise that the kingdom is going to grow, that God is going to keep redeeming his people, that his church will always abide. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need to be reminded of that for where we are in our lives in being stirred up to be bold in our witness. That's, that's important for us. Secondly, I would encourage you to think about the Lord as the bridegroom of your soul. Um, that, that is going to carry us through life. If, it, if we think only about the Lord as a harsh taskmaster, we're never going to serve him with joy. And, and we're not just sons and daughters. We are the bride of the Redeemer. He has purchased us with his blood. He is washing us with his word. He has laid down his life for us. That, that is the most motivating truth. We're here because God wanted a bride for the Lord Jesus. And then finally, I want to encourage you to meditate often on the covenant compassion and mercy of God, the everlasting love and mercy, the, the, the firmness of it. Um, 2020 has been a rocky year for everybody. Um, And as I thought about this and I thought about where we've been and where we're at and wherever you are spiritually, God wants you to take firm hold on the stability of his covenant promises, to own them. It's actually dishonoring to God when we doubt that. Dishonoring when I doubt that. But that we would take God at his word And we would cast ourselves on the anchor of our soul, Jesus Christ, who doesn't change. His promises don't change. The sun doesn't change. 
we are always changing. Um, I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place is truth, not mine, the tie. Hope that you'll be encouraged with those truths as we go into a new week together. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, what enormous promises. And Lord, we acknowledge that we often fail to recognize the mediatorial reward of the Lord Jesus for the guaranteed increase of um, your kingdom and the conversion of men and women and boys and girls. We pray that you would stir us up by way of a reminder. We also ask, Lord, that you would remind us of your um, your great love for us, that you are the bridegroom of our souls. Lord Jesus, would you draw near to us and would you make us to know, would you shed your love abroad in our hearts tonight? And we pray that you would give us great confidence in your covenant promises, that you are the God who does not and will not change. We thank you and praise you that you have fulfilled everything necessary for our salvation. We pray that you would give us grace to lay hold of you by faith and to rest ourselves on the firm foundation of your everlasting covenant of peace. We pray, our God, that you would uh, make these things true for us and that you would work powerfully in us for your namesake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.